Welcome to the Taking the Leap podcast, where you can learn how to launch your full-time career in this part-time gig economy. No matter what career you're in, you have the potential to be the best version of you and overcome whatever obstacles stand in your way. And now, here's your host, the CEO of Bonvera, Bob Dickey. Welcome back to Taking the Leap podcast. I'm your host, Bob Dickey, and I'm really excited about the guests that we have in the studio this afternoon. My good friend, Drayton Wade. I want to read a little bit of his bio here. Uh, He is extremely accomplished. He's one of those types of individuals. He's a millennial that as you start reading through his resume, you're like, I cannot believe this guy has accomplished this much at the young age of 28. But he is definitely a mover and shaker in many capacities. Not only has he been uh, super successful with his educational background, also in his professional background, but just doing great work, uh, both in the for-profit and non-profit space. And I know he is passionate of making a difference uh, in whatever he does. And I think we're going to tease a little bit of this out. But let me just read a little of Drayton's background here. So Drayton Wade is a director of National Partners with UPath, a robotic process automation unicorn startup. Prior to UPath, Drayton ran sales for a virtual reality startup company. And I'm really looking forward to getting into that because I am a, a big fan of AI and virtual reality and augmented reality. I've actually been doing a little studying on that. Uh, he's been doing training programs in the life sciences industries. A Drayton graduated magna cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa from Clemson University in three years before earning his master's in international relations with a focus in international political Islam. you got a very diverse Weird. background. Yeah, is, is the right term. <laughs> and you, you graduated first class honors from the London School of Economics. So a very prestigious uh, university. I've got some friends that have graduated there. And I you know, want to talk a little bit about your, your educational path. It's interesting some of the things that are coming out of the UK and I know their educational system is quite different than what we have here in the US but uh, going on further here in your resume uh, Drayton also serves as a research fellow for the counterterrorism Asia, Asia Pacific Foundation publishing articles on global security agencies and recently serving as a contributing member of the Counterterrorism Reference Curriculum Initiative, helping to write and update curriculum for NATO and the Department of Defense. So that is pretty awesome. You've also done a lot of nonprofit work around the globe. And uh, I will also say, for those who uh, would like to know, Drayton was the youngest delegate ever for CEF. And I had a the privilege in... Um, helping you get you know connected with CEF and I remember your I think your first uh, your first delegation was in Silicon Valley, right? Yep. And then a, probably, a, what was it, a year or two later, uh, you were actually on the main stage delivering a white paper and talking to all the delegates globally, and I thought you held your own with some very, very prestigious uh, guest speakers. And so I'm super proud of you, and uh, absolutely. You're one of the few millennials that I think that I, I routinely go out of my way to spend time with because I feel like it helps me keep my finger on the pulse of what's going going on. And I learn a ton from you. And so I'm really happy to have you in the studio today and uh, looking forward to this conversation. So welcome. Oh, thanks for, thanks for having me and giving me an excuse to come back to Knoxville and go to some of my favorite restaurants and, and holes in the wall. It's, it's great to be back. 
Yeah, well, you and I met back in uh, here, here in Knoxville a number of years ago. You had uh, just graduated from LSE, and you were starting the Knoxville Fellows Program. I remember there was a, a dinner, and all the, the new fellows were kind of in town, and you and I kind of struck up a conversation pretty quickly. Uh, we, uh, we hit it off, and just we, you have a lot of similar interests and backgrounds and so forth, and started a, a great friendship and uh, I, I've really enjoyed that journey. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, you had, what was it, about a year here that you were in the Knoxville Fellows, and then since then, you've had a couple of really interesting uh, career moves. I mean, you and I were just joking a moment ago that you've had multiple pivots in your young career, and you now find yourself, I mean, you've been at some startup companies, we talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey, uh, you've worked with some uh, young entrepreneurial startups that were bootstrapping, but now you find yourself as a director at a, a startup that is, what, a couple years old, and it's raised over a billion dollars in venture capital with uh, UiPath. Uh, so I'd, I'd like to just chat with you a little bit about that entrepreneurial journey. What have you learned along the way? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been, you know, when you read the background, I guess, and I've been really fortunate to, to work on a lot of interesting and um, it's just fun opportunities, you know, that, uh, uh come into play, but it, it's kind of strange, right? When you tell people, Hey, I have a background in, in counterterrorism and political Islam, and yet I'm working in automation today, right? It doesn't seem to, to link together, but, but in a lot of ways it does. And, and, um, I think you actually, and you may not even remember this, but you kind of helped set me on that path here in Knoxville. Um, at the time I was doing some nonprofit consulting work, uh, here as a part of the fellows working with some organizations in Southeast Asia and knew I wanted to move over into uh, the for-profit space. And you actually suggested I look at sales. Again, I don't know if you remember that I do. Um, conversation over at Pete's, mm -hmm. you know, here in Knoxville over some, some bacon. But, um, you know, you mentioned that that was a good entry point and I would learn certain skills in sales that would then, you know, help me uh, throughout my you know, career. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been been very true of actually my educational background. A lot of the things I learned there have helped me in sales, have helped me in a very bootstrapped uh, startup, and you know have helped me at UiPath in a very different situation where we're um, by some metrics the fastest growing uh, enterprise software company in history um, in a lot of respects. Um, but I guess the the, the big thing I, I think that I've found to be commonplace in all these different uh, areas um, was I've been really fortunate to work in companies where I was given the opportunity to uh, work in an environment where the culture was ask for forgiveness, not permission, mm -hmm. which, which fits my personality. I like to go try stuff. I like to get out, get my hands dirty. Um, I was always getting in trouble as a kid, like getting into stuff and, uh, um, you know, but, uh, but I think those type of environments allow someone within a typical or non-typical background, you know, to thrive more than, than an environment where it's very by the book mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of respects. So here you are young in your early in your career, also young um, and wanting to break into ha having an incredible educational background, both uh, graduating with honors from Clemson, graduating with honors from a very prestigious you know, London Econ uh, School of Economics. Um, wanting to break into the business world and using that break-in 
pathway through sales, which I'm a firm believer that you know, the lifeblood of any business organization is sales. Without it, the, the organization ceases to exist. And I think there's just a ton of opportunity for young people to, if you really understand that, uh, you learn about an organization from the ground up. Uh, it gives you all sorts of opportunities then to pivot into other areas. Uh, and one of the things that I've found interesting is that in all your best business schools, you can learn all sorts of aspects of business, whether it's, you know, finance and accounting and marketing and all these other types of things, these degreed programs. But very rarely, if ever, is there a program specifically designed regarding sales. And it truly is the lifeblood uh, of an organization. You've been able to do that now uh, for a couple of different organizations, be on the front line, uh, learn about the sales process, work with customers. And you know, I've read through your resume here on some of the things, you know, uh, multi-million dollar sales initiatives that you've helped uh, lead uh, for growing startup companies. What are some of the things that as you have uh, had success in that realm. What have you learned? I mean, I know you've had mentors with those companies. You've had people who have uh, taught you tricks of the trade. Uh, you didn't have any background. You literally jumped in and be like, hey, I've got to lead sales. You know, tell me about it. What did you learn? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I want to comment on your, your commenting on the business schools, because I think this is something that is often overlooked. And now as I work with the foundation at Clemson, we work with current Clemson students. You know, I try and tell them, uh, students that are even coming out with poli-sci backgrounds is, hey, this is actually a great educational background if you want to get into sales or something like that. Um, because at the end of the day, even with a background in political science or international relations, you're studying people. You're trying to understand how do people react with each other. You're trying to understand how do people communicate? How do they work within an organization? What are their motivations? What are those underlying motivations? So on the NATO initiative, that was actually my section, was I wrote the individual motivations um, you know, section uh, for the counterterrorism curriculum of looking at you know, how, how do people, average people, end up joining these horrific you know, terrorist organizations. And at the end of the day, you realize they're actually base motivations that we have at our core, right, of, of what we want, what we desire, we're self-interested, um, and some of the, the basic emotions that every human has. And that's the same in sales, right? You got ego, you got pride. You have to be able to take something and consider it from the other person's position, right? What do they actually want in a particular transaction? What value can I add to that customer or to that partner in, in the situation I'm in now that creates a solution that gives them what they want while still, right, helping to What problem are you solving? Want. Right, exactly. But it's, it can't just be analytical. It has to be that, that people side. And I think actually people with backgrounds that are a little more atypical um, sometimes can leverage that really successfully within a sales career because they have a good EQ, they have a good understanding of people's emotions and, and how to communicate both precisely and concisely. If you're writing a lot in college, you're getting very, you know, or, or even LSE, this is really a factor. They, LSE didn't give a crap what you could memorize very differently from the US. Mm -hmm. They wanted to know how you thought, how you could structure an argument, and how you could communicate that argument precisely. And I mean, that's, that's sales in a nutshell. I mean, it's being able to, to do that effectively. Um, 
so I think that's a big area is just understanding people and constantly reading and trying to learn more about how we as humans uh, think and how we interact with each other. Um, another thing that I've that's contributed, I think, to, um, you know, when I have been successful is actually how you and I met, right? Is realizing that, hey, I don't have enough time in this life to do all the experiences firsthand, you know, that I need in order to, you know, achieve the things that I, uh, you know, I'm trying to achieve. Instead, I need to be able to leverage the experiences of other people, whether it's through reading or even more importantly, through mentors. So I, I've been extremely blessed with you, uh, first and foremost, as well as other mentors that I've sought out um, who I knew had strong sales backgrounds, uh, Jim Clinaris here in Knoxville mm-hmm. and, and one of my bosses at uh, uh, Bumo, the VR startup I was at, and just picked their brain constantly. Um, and I, I don't think people in my generation do that enough. Um, but from that, you're able to learn insights and I've been able to, I think, skip a lot of uh, failed experiments, let's mm-hmm. say, uh, more quickly and, and kind of apply the things that are successful uh, depending on the different situation. So that's been really helpful. And sometimes I still try and do, you know, constantly. Some of the CEF's been great for too is connecting with different people, um, you know, to where I can pick their brain and learn from their experiences and also, you know, share my own insights and experiences. Couple of things that you mentioned uh, there, in terms of things that have been extremely uh, impactful for you in your very short but so far successful career, right? I mean, the things that you've accomplished by the age of twenty-eight. But you mentioned EQ. You mentioned uh, an atypical kind of career path. Yet you uh, have a very, very diverse background educationally and uh, experientially. And uh, then you also talked about mentorship, and I'd like to kind of just allow you to talk a little bit about each one of those, EQ, your atypical career mentorship. So let's start with, uh, with EQ. I remember um, reading recently, I believe it was uh, Astro Teller, who is the uh, Moonshots director at Google, and he mentions in this new uh, economy that EQ is going to be more important than IQ. Uh, and you know, you mentioned this that e- having high EQ in sales has been very important for you in terms of your success. So tell me a little more about uh, the the EQ and how, because it's something that's not necessarily taught in universities. I don't believe. Um, I mean, you you can't generally go and say, hey, "I want to get a, a degree in emotional quotient or emotional intelligence." But people who have the ability to read other people to be able to engage, to understand their motivations, their feelings, and to be able to get in the other person's shoes, I believe have a superpower in this new global economy, be able to see the world through another person's eyes. I know you obviously have that. Uh, So where did you start to develop this EQ and how have you leveraged it uh, throughout the course of your your career? Yeah, I I don't know if I could think back to where I really started with it, I guess, I think some of it is personality as well. I'm very much an extrovert. Um, I was very fortunate to have two parents who were wonderful in pushing me at a young age to be engaged, particularly with adults. Um, so on my mom's side of the family, she's the baby by a long shot. My closest cousin's, I think, like 12 years older than me. And my wow. sister's, 
my si- older sister is the closest to me, and then there's you know, my cousin older than that, 10 to 12 years older. So there was no like kids' table, I guess. I was always at the parents' table and always got to engage in conversations. But from a young age, you, you get used to just being a part of conversations and kind of observing, especially when you're the young one. You yeah. kind of are quiet and just observe. Um, so I think a lot of it's, you know, personality uh, to some extent too, but especially when I went to college. So at Clemson, I actually, um, well, one, I started off engineering major and realized that was not the right thing. In fact, in high school, I had, I had a teacher, um, wonderful, wonderful lady, uh, who really began to open my mind, I think, to actually thinking critically. And, um, and politically, we couldn't have been more apart, but, but she really opened my perspective in a lot of ways. And I remember at a graduation party telling her, yeah, I'm going to go study engineering at Clemson. And she's a very outspoken lady. She goes, no, you're not. Just straight out, just no, you're not. She said, within six months, you'll be calling me and you'll be switching majors. And sure enough, within, I think it was three months, I was already switching uh, out of engineering because I realized, you know, it just wasn't the way I'm, I'm wired. Uh, what, what was it about it? You just Oh, man, there's this, uh, you know, calculus was fine. Uh, chemistry was fine. There was this intro-level engineering course that was all just about uh, conversions, mm-hmm. actually, of, like, switching different, like, units and mm-hmm. these problems. Oh, it drove me nuts. It was so boring, and I, I'm, I, I don't do well with, like, things that I'm, you know, bored at. But when I'm interested in something, I, I, I can go after it. And I, uh, I took an international relations class that same semester as an elective. And was doing very, very well in that ding, class. Ding, 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 ding. Like, yeah, we got a winner. This is, yeah, this is not, you know, it was an upper, upper uh, level class, and I was doing a lot better in that than I was in the mm-hmm. freshman engineering. And um, at Clemson, once I switched to political science, I actually took on a independent research uh, on Rwanda, and I was looking at how people in Rwanda and the genocide, uh, how people became convinced that they needed to kill their neighbor, which was a question that really bothered me a lot. I couldn't figure that out because it's, it was a very, um, if you look at different ethnic cleansing and genocides, it was a very face-to-face, uh, most of the time with the machete, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't a systematic holocaust. This is a very face-to-face uh, yeah, You're killing your next-door neighbor. It's not like someone in the country yeah. over. I mean, these were people that you were friends with, that people known that you've known for years. For years. They, yeah. you, went, you had backyard barbecues, and all of a sudden it's like one morning you're yeah, so what did you learn? And, well, and so that, that's where I think I really became interested in human behavior in particular, mm-hmm. right, and trying to understand how, how, how does this happen. And what I found with that, and then later with the study on the, the Balkans, where I studied abroad, mm-hmm. um, and then in um, uh, political Islam and terrorist movements, mm-hmm. is, is often there's baseline emotions that are, that are causing these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not going to go too in-depth with that. That's a longer conversation, but... But that, I think, helped me understand a lot more of how humans operate with emotions mm-hmm. um, and how we're not really rational creatures at the end of the day. We think we're a lot more rational than we, we often are, mm-hmm. right? And so in sales, it's the same way, right? Where if you come in and try to just be completely rational and, and lay out this perfect uh, solution for someone, but it's, it's, not, it's not formulaic, is it? No, no, it doesn't happen at all. They don't give a crap. It's about the relationship of it. It's about understanding that person, getting to know, you know, the client mm-hmm. on the other side, um, because typically their their actual wants or desires are not just some prescriptive, 
you know, thing. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think through education, I did some work in nonprofit consulting too, which mm-hmm. helped. Um, and then reading. I mean, the, the more, more you read and the more you learn about people, either through biographies or through, um, you know, different books like Thinking Fast and Slow and mm-hmm. others, you, you begin to... Daniel Kahneman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You begin to, I think, understand how um, how people interact and, and and you realize how much you, you don't know too, mm-hmm. right? Where it just, uh, yeah. I remember I had one professor one time said, you know, congratulations, you now know how much you don't know. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's the same with the EQ too, though, is I'm constantly learning and constantly um, learning more about myself and how I make decisions, uh, which is often not rational, and then I can extrapolate that to other people uh, too. It's one of the things that I uh, really appreciate about you is your just insatiable appetite for knowledge. And I think it's one of the things that you c- connected you and I early on. Uh, within minutes of us chatting, I mean, we were, have you read this? Hey, have you read this? What about this book? What about that book? And uh, it's one of the things that I've enjoyed about our relationship over the last, I don't know, eight years or however long it's been. Uh, when we talk, I mean, it is just, I, I, I pull out a, a notepad. I'm like, okay, I want to know the books that Drayton's reading. What, what interests you? Uh, where are you reading? Where are you studying? And vice versa, you ask me the same thing. And we've, uh, j- even before this podcast, I mean, we were going to start this quite some time ago, and we got you know, deep into an hour and a half long conversation. We're just trading back and forth in terms of podcast and, and information. Um, and so I've seen how that has been a force multiplier, to use a military term, but it's been a force multiplier for you in your career. Uh, taking information and being able to leverage it to make you better, to be a, be a better leader, a better husband, a better uh, person in sales. Um, it, it's You've amazed me at how quickly you can acquire information and then leverage it uh, for a greater good, there, I, I know a lot of people. I've got I've got a number of close friends who will be um, they're avid readers, uh, or they'll say, oh, "I love education," but don't leverage it. Don't actually put it into practice. And that's one of the things that I just want to from what we're talking about right now is you're not only an avid reader, but you leverage it and use it uh, to get better. So that's, I think, been extremely important in your career. So let's move on. We talked a little bit about EQ. You gave uh, some great insights there on the power of EQ, the importance of EQ. And I think one of the things that uh, I've also noticed, you've got a great deal of empathy for people. And I think that people can uh, see that, sense that with you. I think it's been something I appreciate about you. Um, but let's talk a little bit about your, uh, you said you've had an atypical career path. You've got a, have an atypical educational path, which has also led to an atypical career path. And I believe that actually is a superpower in today's economy. A person who has diversity of education, a diversity of career, diversity of experiences, actually is able to see the world through different lenses and be able to connect a lot of dots that other people can't. So tell me about this atypical path that you've taken. I, I got to start it off with the, the remark about, you know, I've been unbelievably fortunate. Again, I, and you know my parents pretty well, but I mean – hit the lottery, right, in terms of uh, genetic lottery, in terms mm-hmm. of having a supportive family and, and, and been given every opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, ever since I was very young, I've been, if there was something I wanted to pursue or go that I found interesting, 
uh, I, I was given that opportunity, and I think a lot of people don't have that. So I'm very cognizant of that uh, mm-hmm. um, gift that I've been given. Certainly within uh, you know college, that was the case of uh, studying abroad in Serbia and Bosnia, right, and being able to afford things like that, or working in the Dominican Republic, or um, going to school in London, right? There's some people that just um, you know can't from that um, perspective. But I mean, in truth, I think part of it too is I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, some respect. I just found different things interesting, and uh, I realized that I've always been a very hard worker. Um, ever since I was really young, I, I, I'm a fairly athletic guy, but not as athletic as some of the guys coming out of Rock Hill, South Carolina. And so, in sports, I just had to outwork other people. Mm-hmm. My dad built that into me, and so I always found that if there's something I'm interested in, I could, you know, really pursue that hard. If I wasn't interested in it, it was very difficult for me to. To put in those, you know, hours, and I think that you, you talk about that in your book some too, right? That alignment. And so in college, I just started pursuing what I was interested in, right? And uh, and that was with the ethnic violence and things like that. And so I was planning on going actually to uh, law school, mm-hmm. and so I, I graduated in three years, but I wanted my last year of college to count towards my law school application. So I needed to take a year in between. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had a professor um, who was an amazing gentleman who actually used to be assistant foreign minister of Yugoslavia. So again, just a very incredible uh, human being. Um, he told me, hey, look over in London. You can go do it for a year. There's great schools, and you're going to get a very different education. So going to LSE was not like some planned, hey, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. It was, hey, I've got a year in between. Mm-hmm. I can go get a great experience, get my master's, and this will help me in as you uh, law school. Law school, as a part of law school. Um, so I got to London, and I interned right before I went to London in a law office, and I absolutely hated it. And I kept having these lawyers tell me, "Don't go to law school. Just don't go to the, the law school." So then I'm at LSE, and I'm like, I have no clue what in the heck I'm gonna, you know, do after this. But again, just kind of pursued what I was. Uh, uh, interested in but ultimately that uh, how I ended up in Knoxville too I still didn't know what I wanted to do um, came here to the the fellows um, was thinking about going into some intel work um, but then you know the the old quote of you want to hear God laugh tell me your plans mm-hmm. you know came into play and uh, uh, got into a girl down in down in South Carolina that uh, you know, that, that led me a different direction to where I wasn't going to go into the Intel world. Um, yeah, you married, by the way, you married way over your station. Oh, not in life. even close. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, Mary, someone who's beautiful and way more intelligent and, and charming than I am. I mean, it's not even a, not, not even close in any, uh, respect, but, uh, that, that led me to, to really look at for-profit in some respects, realizing that I was working in nonprofit and mm-hmm. trying to help some of the things that I had been studying for a while and mm-hmm. to help prevent those. But I realized that nonprofit solutions to a lot of the world's challenges are going to always be limited by um, by certain factors. Mm-hmm. For-profit has the accountability of profit that um, spurs a certain drive and certain level of excellence that nonprofit just doesn't have, mm-hmm. even with the best of intentions. So I wanted to move into for-profit and the sales then, you know, I've worked in different companies since then. Um, but I think, you know, that uh, the the atypical path has actually helped me in a lot of ways. One being, 
I don't know any better. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have this like rigid pathway that that you're supposed to do, right? Where it, like say if you went into consulting right out of college and you're supposed to go, you know, you're going to be um, associate and then consultant and then manager. Mm-hmm. So instead, I just jumped around and kind of pursued whatever there was because I didn't know any better. It was just a. But it sounds like you there. There's a little bit of a theme, right? I mean, if, and I want to know if I'm seeing this right. So you you had a plan or an idea at Clemson. Hey, I want to go be an engineer. Got there. No, <laughs> don't like it. Pivot. Okay. Ended up having a great successful um, Clemson. Uh, background, but you, you went to something that you enjoyed, something that you were interested in. Then you're like, hey, I've got this idea. I'm going to go to law school. Well, I've got this extra year. Let me go knock out a master's degree in London, um, do a little research. No, you don't want to do it. Here's why. And you pivoted away from uh, the law career. So, I mean, it, you, so it's like you've got plans, but when you then you get into it, you start doing some analysis. You're like, you know what, this maybe maybe I don't. Is it the fact that you're 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 realizing that your skill sets don't align with that plan, or is it that you're following your passion? Is it that there's a new opportunity? You somewhere along the line, you've got plans, and you're making a fairly radical change on that. And is it because of why? It's actually typically following uh, interest. Or anything else. And this is actually a big beef I kind of have with the way um, some older generations view millennials, Mm -hmm. right? So I've changed jobs actually almost every two years Mm -hmm. to this point. And that's often viewed as a negative, right? I hear this all the time from, from, let's say, baby boomer generation and others. Uh, are you, are you going to drop a you boomer quote on me? I'm not going to do the <laughs> the you boomer meme real quick, but but no, it's something that I I'm I, not a boomer by the way. I just I, I know, for I all know. the listeners out there, I'm I'm firmly Gen yeah, X. I'm not very socially apt either, but I've I've seen that recently uh, or social media uh, adaptive. But a common uh, criticism of millennials is, hey, stop changing jobs all the time. They're flaky. They which is total crap to me, frankly, because think about the expectation that you're setting on someone who's 20 years old. Mm-hmm. You're expecting someone at 20 years old to have the self-awareness to understand what they're interested in, what gifts God has given them with only 20 years of experience and only a few years on their own and expected them to then map out this grandiose life plan that they're going to follow from age 20, which is total crap. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe previous generations did that, but they did that then... We're miserable 15 years in. Well, the the paradigm was completely different with the baby boomer generation. Pivoting multiple times in your career wasn't really an option. Right. That's Uh, true. And the the social structure of the day, the norms were, hey, you hire in at one of these big companies. You know, name them. Uh, I I was from Flint, Michigan. So the General Motors, Ford, Chrysler, those are big up there. But, you know, it's GE, you name it, big companies. You get your great benefits, work that job for you know, security. That was the number one thing people wanted. They wanted security. They wanted the benefits, the health care, and so forth. Do that for 30 or 40 years, retire. And so, yep. but, so they're looking at it through the lens of what was the playbook for success for their generation. And I think a lot of them don't realize that that playbook it's gone. It, it has been completely thrown out of the window. The, the, the social norms today and what's happening is we, you and I were actually talking about this a few moments ago before we started started was the whole concept of us having to completely re-engineer life. And so young people coming out of college today understand, I think hopefully most of them understand, that 
they should not be calling the plays from their grandparents and parents' generation. They need to engineer their life differently, see the world differently. It'd be like, you know, um, somebody pulling out a, a playbook from the 1920s in football and hoping that they're going to win a Super Bowl today, they'd get destroyed, right? I mean, you've got – it's a completely different offensive scheme, right? And so it, it, your generation has a completely different mindset of how you have to en- engineer to have success. Yeah, and I think a couple points on that. I, I think you're spot on. Um, but one, I think, is in this new economy, which you've written about quite extensively – right, in both of your books. The rate of change is so fast, too, that one, I think you're seeing this even with older generations now, of those jobs mm-hmm. changing quite right. frequently, right? You're, so so the job, the idea of working at one company for 10 years is a lot less frequent, especially in sales, mm-hmm. more, than, yeah. uh, more than others. But I think the, the other thing is the demarcation between work and regular life is gone, right? Because of cell phone technology and everything else, work is a heavily integrated with mm-hmm. our life as we were, you know, you and I were talking about earlier um, to where now we don't even think of retirement in the same way that previous generations did, right? Work, work's something you do. And so if work's going to be that uh, consuming in life and that integrated in life, it better be something that, that fits your personality, fits your gifts and fits your interests. So back to the question you asked me is how did I keep making these pivots? Often it was either a, um, greater self-awareness mm-hmm. of what I am gifted at. And I think that's continually evolving. Um, and B, you know, what am I actually interested in? Because if I'm going to put in long hours, you know, you want it to be something that you're, you're definitely interested in. And, and you, you and I have talked about this a lot. If it's something you're interested in, typically it doesn't feel like work yeah. at that point, right? It's the stuff that you're really not interested in that you're having to do that just feels... Um, you know, laborious and, and uh, difficult yeah. in that sense. So yeah, I've just kept pursuing different avenues. The, 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 the way I've looked at it is either A, is it something I'm interested in and that kind of gr- mm-hmm. you know, drifts towards it, and B, does it open up more opportunities? So I did have a mentor really uh, pound this into my head, my former boss actually at the VR startup who was a mentor before he was my boss. Um, he taught me a lot about that and, and taught me a lot of playing chess, mm-hmm. right? And in chess, you're actually, your whole, one of the whole goals in chess is to limit the opportunities of your opponent mm-hmm. and to expand your own mm-hmm. opportunities. And so he has coached me and it's helped quite a bit to always look for routes that are going to expand opportunities. As opposed constantly. to limit them. Right. Yeah. I talked, uh, the, the, the term that I use with my kids and, and others uh, they, my kids joke about this all the time because I, I use it so frequently, but I'm, I'm always talking about optionality. It's like, right, there are decisions that you make today that gives you more optionality. You want more, and I don't know where I heard that term, but I love it because I'm always looking for more optionality. I'm, just, I'm the exact same way. Options are good. And so it's interesting how you've looked at all of those decisions within your careers to say, which one will lend me to have greater options? more beneficial options in the future versus making decisions that could limit your options in the future. Well, and so since we're talking about this, we're, we're, doing, we're going down this atypical career path that you've had, an educational path, and I want to get back at some point to uh, what the differences were between the educational system and the British system that you experienced at the London School of Economics. But 
talking about optionality, one of the things that I've also discovered within the millennial generation at times, and it doesn't have to necessarily be millennial generation, but when there are a when there's a breadth of options, there can become a, a, a tendency to be almost paralyzed and like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. Back in the day when there was like maybe Henry Ford was like, yeah, the only option of the Model T was black. You want to, you want other, as long as it's black, you got it, right? Uh, now the car buying experience in the United States is look at how many models there are, how many colors there are. And, you know, you can walk into a showroom and be like, I don't even know where to start. What do I do? So how have you navigated? Because you've done a great job, as you said, of making decisions that give you more options in life. But I also feel like you've handled that optionality better than a lot of your peers. How, how do you analyze that and not become paralyzed? Yeah, you know, it's a great point. And I, I um it makes me think there was a study done, and I can't remember where actually I, I read this. And this is a problem. See, this is the the you know you have the benefits of being a uh, ask for forgiveness, not permission guy. Mm-hmm. But the problem is you suck at details, right? And remembering <laughs> details is miserable. My, my wife always gets on me for that, certainly. But uh, um, there was a study I remember reading one time. It was actually talking about uh, consumer habits, mm-hmm. and they actually find. Like if you go to a nice restaurant, mm-hmm. right? They actually have very few options. And the reason for that is the food's all fresh. But they find that uh, consumer happiness is actually higher in stores that have less options to some extent than in like Cheesecake Factory menu because of exactly what you're describing is when you go into these stores, you're, you're completely paralyzed. Should I have ordered that appetizer? Yeah, this one, did I yeah. order the right dish? Oh my gosh, you know, what am I, what I'm missing out? Yeah. Like, dude. You're, you get this anxiety over over choosing cheesecake, you know, yeah. something stupid. Like, uh, uh, well, uh, cheesecakes, maybe that's not stupid. But, you know, it, it, you get the point. There's um, more important things in life to stress about than what cheesecake right. you're going to have for dessert. Right. And they, so there was a study that actually showed that, yeah. you know, too limited of options causes unhappiness and too many, too many options, options causes um, unhappiness. I mean, I think in, in my own life, I've been – very fortunate to um, have wise people giving me counsel. Mm-hmm. Um, even with my my wife, there was a recent opportunity I had to get involved and serve in a particular way. Um, you know, back in, in Winston Salem, and um, and my wife actually basically told me, "I don't think you should do that." And her reason was it would limit you down a certain pathway mm-hmm. uh, very extensively. I can't take credit for that because one of my, my pitfalls, right, again, of being an action-oriented type guy is, is sometimes I, uh, you know, don't, don't think things all the way uh, through, right, mm-hmm. in some respects. And so uh, one thing I have done a good job, though, is I think is asking people for feedback, and mm-hmm. they help, help me think through the first, second, and third level of consequences, which really show you those options. Yeah. Um, you know, further out. And, um, and I think too, at this, this point in my career, something you've taught me, um, is to value experience mm-hmm. and learning a lot more than other things. And if you value experience and learning a lot more, um, that tends to lead to more options. Yeah. Typically. Right. Cause you're adding different feathers to your, uh, or different arrows to your quiver that you can then, you know, move into, um, rather than pursuing, you know, wealth or other things in the short term. So I'd say probably just bouncing the ideas off people like you and others has helped more than anything 
else. And I think I find with friends sometimes people are afraid to do that. I don't know why, if it's pride or feeling foolish, but people don't, people don't get enough opinions, I think, mm-hmm. sometimes from people that they trust uh, in that sense. Well, what, it, that's a great segue into mentorship. Yeah. The third point that I had written down from that earlier. Do you remember how he actually like became mentor? Do you know the full story behind that? I, I vaguely remember. I, re, I remember right. the dinner that we were at, but you had you no, were. No, you, it was before that. If oh you, no! Okay, go ahead. Tell me about it. You, you, you were talking with Rick Coleman, right? Yeah. So you you don't remember this, and you shouldn't, because I don't even think I met you that day. You came actually to. I was visiting from London, so I, I was still in grad school and came and visited like April, mm-hmm. maybe something like that for Easter. So I came to one of those Friday luncheons they had, and you were talking at that. I was giving the talk at the Friday yeah, luncheon. Yeah, okay. I was sitting just kind of back in the corner, you know, quietly. And I remember listening to your story and just the way you talked and the way you processed things. And I went to Rick afterwards and like, Rick, like that guy's like me. Like, like that, that's spooky. Like I, I feel like... I understand kind of how he's thinking. Mm-hmm. And so I asked Rick then to approach you about being a mentor. Then we connected to that dinner and that smoothed it. But I remember we took the uh, the Personality career idea. ID and it was yeah. like, you know. Oh, yeah, we were identical. Spookily. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I don't, I don't know if you knew that or not. Well, I, I'm blessed that you asked uh, Rick that I would be your mentor for that year because it's bit, you've uh, definitely enriched my life and, and not only have I learned a lot from you but I've also gotten uh, a lifelong friend out of it so it's been uh, you know one of the things that I've appreciated about you is because we've had this you know it was a structured let's call that a structured mentorship relationship for that year yeah. where um, I, I was your mentor but one of the things that I appreciated about it is you approached you and said well Bob I don't want this to be a one-way street and uh, we would get together for coffee and uh, dinner and so forth. But you said, I want to I want to know how I can provide value to you. I want to know. So I don't want to feel like I'm just taking, but I want to know uh, how I can provide value. And it was just I, I had never had someone, you know, in, in a in a, uh, in a mentorship relationship like that say that before. And I, a lot of times you came to our meeting uh, and it became for for that year, it was kind of the mentor mentee kind of relationship, but it very quickly moved into just a peer relationship of just two two friends, and we were at different life stages. But that's how I viewed you. We, you know, we were just two buds, two friends. Uh, I was we were at two different stages in life, but we were both learning from each other. And I and I wanted to learn from you in terms of uh, how millennials think and process what you're experiencing. Well, what are the, the the stressors in the world around you? Putting my putting helping me put my finger on the pulse of the millennial generation, and vice versa. A lot of times you were asking me questions about, hey Bob, what's it like to be, you know, married, have kids, be in your forties? What are the things that I should should be doing uh, today that allow will allow me to have success and, and be in a spot where I want to be when I'm in my 40s. And so it was just, it was a very beneficial, I thought, um, relationship, and I appreciated the way you approached it. And I feel like I get a lot more out of it than I'm able to contribute uh, uh, back. But yeah, I mean, I, I, it's been unbelievably uh, a blessing, you know, for me too. And, and and I think too because our personalities are relatively similar. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a great uh, sounding board, I think, both ways, maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe in some respects, I 
uh, again, I'm able to relate to you and give you some perspective on younger generation. But for me, it's sometimes like talking to, uh, you know, someone very similar to who I will be 15 to 20 years from now. And, and that that's really valuable, um, you know, for me personally. Incredible blessing. Well, speaking of, you know, mentorship, you mentioned in your story earlier that you sought your wife's guidance and that she provided you really good career counsel. Now, and one of the things that I would say is that in, in my lifetime, the, the person who knows me now best, I've been married for, what, 25 years now, um, the person who knows me best than anyone on this planet is my wife. Uh, she can read me within seconds, and she knows my motivations, she knows my fears, and so, you know, everything about me. And she's able to provide really, really good counsel. And I'm astonished at how many married people, for whatever reason, don't seek counsel from their spouse. And to me, it's just absolutely asinine. Um, See, it's a good thing. It's a bad thing. You can't hide anything when they know you that well, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. And so, but I, it's in, interesting. And from a mentorship perspective, you you're, you're seek counsel from your wife. Uh, which I think is a, an extremely important principle that, you know, um, f- for people who are successful in life, that they in, that their, their spouse, their partner is very much included in that process. Uh, you also talked about, so I've been a, a mentor for you. You had one of your first bosses was a mentor, but you've had a plethora of people who have been uh, mentors for you in your career. Uh, so, why haven't you just had one mentor? Why have you had multiple mentors? I, I know the answer, but I want, I want to hear you articulate this. But you, you've sought guidance and counsel from a whole host of individuals. Um, I, want to, I want to hear that first. But I also, but I also want to, uh, the, the follow-up question would be, I know some people who have done that the wrong way, where they're specifically going out and cherry picking, trying to find the information to someone that will validate what they want to do, right? And they'll be like, oh, well, my mentor said this. I'm like, no, you went through 10 different people until you found the person who would say, yes, that's a great idea. And then it validated them to go do X, Y, and Z. And that's not what you're doing. You're, you're specifically seeking out people who are uh, we'll be able to give you wise counsel in a variety of different categories. And I just want to you tell me why. Where where did you learn that? Yeah, I, I think the the first part of the cherry picking thing. One of the biggest values. I mean, you know, you know, my wife Jess. Jess is an incredibly, incredibly strong woman, doctor. I mean, just powerhouse of a of a woman and, and, and unbelievable. And uh, but you know, one thing that has been beneficial for me in that respect. And that has to be the same with mentors, I think. Um, and, and you and Brandy, I'm sure, have the same. Is there has to be the freedom to tell you just straight up, you're wrong. Speak the truth, right? Or, yeah, just just absolutely with with love and, and tenderness. And just does that, you know, absolutely um, in the most loving way. Just of, you know, no, this is a bad idea. It's because especially for people like you and me that are wired and, and by nature, I think we're a bit stubborn in some respects too or at least have a lot of energy behind our ideas, if someone isn't there to challenge that, you know, you, we can go off on um, wrong paths rather quickly. Um, and that's something that I think actually when you and I first got connected, 
I think I said that to you early on is like, hey, you know, I need you to like just tell me straight up sometimes if this is a bad idea or not to do that. Because otherwise you don't really have a mentorship, right? You just have a information, as you put it. You don't have that actual relationship of I'm giving you authority as a mentor in my life to tell me no, mm-hmm. right? Or to tell me when I am wrong. Um, and that's something that I've, with these other mentors, you know, always tried to establish as well, right? As, as I'm giving you authority to, to speak very, very truthfully uh, into my um, life. You know, I, the, back to the question of why a lot of different mm-hmm. mentors, um, I, I, I think it was from Napoleon Hill way back in that book, but he talked about having like a council. Mm-hmm. He talks about it historically, and I've tried to do that actually with autobiographies mm-hmm. or, or biographies uh, too, to learn different lessons from different historical leaders. Um, but he talks about that, that breadth of, of counsel, of the different perspectives and different opinions that gives you a more well-rounded uh, viewpoint. And I, if you only have one area of guidance or mentorship. So like for me with my dad, I have probably the closest relationship that a person can have with their father because I've just been unbelievably blessed and he's an incredible man of God, you know, to to have that relationship. Um, But if I only got counsel from him, I would miss out on so many different um, perspectives and areas and and not be able to leverage their experiences, Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, as well. And so um, that's why I've, I've seeked you know, to an extent, you, you can only have so many deep, relation, meaningful relationships in life, but um, that's why I, I've sought to keep up at least, you know, mm-hmm. four or five, let's say, people that, that have that authority in my life to tell me no. And, and hopefully, now that I'm, uh, you know, I'm still very young, but hopefully now I can start to develop that with people younger than me, too, and, and it goes downhill from there. I think it's uh, very wise to put it on the table with your with your mentor and say, "I need you to speak truth to me." And I, I've shared this with you know even uh, the team here. I say, "I am horrible at reading between the lines. Don't think that you're going to be able to soft pedal me and be like, well, I don't want to offend Bob or hurt Bob or whatever.' And maybe I'm going to read between the lines and then be able to interpret. I'm a horrible mind reader as well." Uh, so I need people to speak clearly to me, right? And that's I value that's a that's a value of mine. I would rather, especially with my uh, a, a mentor relationships, I want my mentor to be able to say, "Bob, this is what I see. This is what I'm feeling." Here, I, here a warning, red flag. You know, I, I want that right away. Um, again, one of my my pet peeves is when I hear someone who's mentoring another person. They're like, "Well, I really need to tell them X, but I can't because I'm afraid it's going to hurt their feelings or they're not ready to hear the truth." I'm like, "What in the world are you doing?" Right? It's like the the, the whole aspect of mentorship is to be able to speak tough truths to an individual uh, to help them, and and certainly and and the flip side of that is. Uh, let, let's say, because I've, I've heard that multiple times where someone will say, well, I, I can't speak truth to this person. And that is not, that's an indictment on both parties. It's an yeah. indictment on the mentor of not being able to wade into a tough conversation to help somebody. But it's, I would even say, more of an indictment on the mentee who has not 
uh, uh, officially stated at the beginning of that relationship and said, my goal here is to be the best version of me. My goal is whatever it is, but speak truth to me no matter what so that I can be a better version or I can accomplish the goals that I've set in front of me. So it's, it's a both and. Both parties have to be willing to wade into tough discussions. And I think there has to be a, I don't think people have time for the, the opposite, right? Especially when you're, like today, modern economy of how fast paced everything is and the time demands on mentors, you know, like yourself. I think something I did incorrectly early in our relationship is I would often have a lot of fluff and expect you to kind of ask and probe and get, mm-hmm. you know, get in there. But no one has time for that. You, you got to be, be willing to come prepared. I mean, you and I get together in person once a year, maybe, maybe twice, mm-hmm. you know, have to be able to come prepared of, hey, these are the things I need to talk about. Let's dive in and yeah. and get our hands deep. And I think mentees a lot of times don't do that. I know I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Well, we we have too much fluff or want the mentor to pull everything out. And But to your point, you're not going to read between the lines and figure out what's going on in my life unless I actually tell you, right. hey, tell me what you think about X, Y, and you know Z. So Hopefully I'm doing that better now yeah, than uh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> Years past. Well, let, let's uh, take a hard pivot uh, and go back to uh, something that you had mentioned a little bit earlier regarding education, because I want to uh, kind of pull this out as well. I think we've got a lot of great information there on mentorship. I, I just to put the capstone on, on that particular conversation, uh, I have never read about a person or uh, met a person who was successful in life who accomplished it on their own. Every single man, woman who has ever been successful in anything never got there by themselves. They got there through a whole host of coaches and mentors and advisors and people who have helped them along the way. I know I've had that uh, in my life, and I think that you you highlighted a lot of really great uh uh, information there on mentorship and the power of it in accomplishing anything in life, whether right? it's in you know, uh, marriage, whether it's in business. I think you, we, you need mentors in all aspects of life, not just you know accomplishing goals and uh, business-related and entrepreneurship stuff, but uh, having a, a mentor uh, that can help you through every single you know step of life and the things that you're going through. Um, Probably even more so yeah. in the other areas of life. Right when mm-hmm. it comes to marriage, or when it comes to, you need someone who can truly, you know, help you avoid <laughs> yeah. making some really wrong. Because men are stupid. I mean, there's no other way about it when it comes to marriage. So, yeah, I think even more so, giving someone that authority to to tell you this is a bad idea, like you know, is important. Mm-hmm. For sure. Let's talk a little bit about one of the things that I found interesting early on. I knew that you valued education. You had a very impressive background at Clemson, as I've highlighted at the very beginning. Then you went on to a very prestigious uh, master's program. And I want to hear about the differences of the American versus the British uh, education system. But even during your time at the Fellows, you're working, you're in a fellowship program, 
But during that year, you came to me and you said, Bob, I feel like I've got some gaps in my education. I want to get better. I want to be prepared when I, when I um, get into the business world. What are ways in which I can improve on that? And so I recommended that you take a couple uh, MOOCs, yep. massive open online courses. And I believe you, you took one from the University of Michigan in finance. Yep. And then I think you took another one. Was it, was it from Penn or yep. was it not? Okay. And at the Wharton School. So you were actively, even with your impressive educational background, you were actively trying to get better in various key areas. Uh, tell me a little bit about your motivation there, and then I want you to tell us a little bit about the difference of the American system versus the British system. The British system was sounds like very much uh, more on, I w- we want to know how you think, how you process, not so much that you can regurgitate a bunch of information. Yeah. Yeah. So first on the MOOCs, um, (laughs) a little embarrassing, but the way I even thought about that and a quote that's always stuck with me is I was a huge house of cards fan, Mm -hmm. honestly, the Kevin Spacey ones, not the last one, but a big, big house of cards fan. I remember this quote, um, that I think while I was in Knoxville, I watched that show and he made some quote, he said, you know, only, or even Achilles is only as strong as his heel. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's always always struck with me, again, as cheesy as that as that is, because what's a true statement? No, and it's true, right? I'm not a an accounting guy. The way my brain works is not geared towards, you know, heavy, heavy math. But what I've realized too, and, and actually in my job at the time doing nonprofit consulting, we were looking through organizations, um, you know, they're their finance and accounting and the health of these organizations. I realized, man, there's a lot of stuff I don't know here. There's language here, you know, accounts payable, accounts receivable, EBITDA, you know, things like that, that I just had no clue what this even meant. And I realized that that was a huge gap and an Achilles heel for me, Mm -hmm. if you will, that would limit my options severely. Mm -hmm. So while I'm never going to probably make accounting my, you know, strength, Mm-hmm. And in fact, taking the time to make accounting my absolute strength is probably a bad, bad idea. It has to be brought up to a level to where it's not a weakness, though. Mm-hmm. Right? It has to be brought up to a level where it's not a, a giant vulnerability um, for me or where I'm put in a situation where I'm going to be in trouble. Um, and so through MOOCs, that's what I decided to do was, hey, these are free online. I could do homework. They actually grade the homework. You know, and I wasn't making any money while I was here, so free was a really important one. Right. And so just at night, I would, you know, kind of go through these different courses. And what it really taught me is the language mm-hmm. more than anything else um, and some different ways of, of looking at it. So I've done one on um, two on finance, one in accounting, um, some on negotiations mm-hmm. um, as well. And, yeah, that's, that's an incredible resource that's out there with Coursera, Khan Academy, whatever you use it not enough people know about. I know y'all have done it with the no pay. Yeah, so that, yeah stuff, we, but. it's one of the things that I'm passionate about. I, I, I like how you termed that where you, you, you were looking at the gaps that you had that you wanted to fill so that you could have a, uh, a successful career. And one of the things that we do uh, at Bon Vera is we realize that our, our entrepreneurs, a lot of times we've got entrepreneurs, this is their, the first time they've ever been an entrepreneur. And, you know, there's so much to learn. Um, and there's so many ways in which to grow. And so the, and the key thing is you've you, you got to constantly be, be filling those gaps, 
be um, being motivated to continue to lean in, you know, day in and day out. Uh, and so we've created uh, what, what we've coined the New Way MBA, yep. and it's a in, in leveraging all of those types of things that are in, in those MOOCs, uh, an online learning community to be able to fill those gaps for our entrepreneurs, to be able to help them with all the tools and resources they need to be effective uh, in their uh, be effective and successful in their job. And so I absolutely love it. And we've got a whole bunch of, you know, we're trying to get better each and every year, adding more resources, more technology, uh, more, you know, thought leaders coming in and, and speaking to be able to help uh, fill those gaps. Um, and thankfully, I think that content is going to just continue to increase mm-hmm. in a lot of specific areas. Now there's like, so in my field of artificial intelligence and automation, there's tons of great courses online now, you know, even around that. Um, so even if, even if someone I think is looking to move into a different field, so not just a, you know, skill set, mm-hmm. but actually looking on subject matter of a particular field, there's incredible. I mean, my wife, so at the end of medical school, you actually have like a couple months after you figured out where you're going mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, really pretty low key. And so I remember she took a MOOC on wine Really? Believe it or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Learning all these different. So she's French too, right? Oh, so, yeah. why, you know, but uh, and from near Bordeaux. So she's really interested in wine. And so she took one and learned, I mean, a ton of, a ton of stuff. So I think. Make sure you send that one to me. I want to. Yeah, well, I figured you'd enjoy that. But uh, no, I think, I think it's fantastic. And um, I like how y'all are packaging it though. Because for someone. And there's, there's some things online that are packaging mm-hmm. it, but otherwise you could be a little bit lost trying to pick and pick and choose. Yeah, we had we we, launched, we had a pretty big technology initiative this year to um, to put it in an app, and we've got a whole bunch of plans nice. for uh, 2020 in terms of how we're going to continue to expand the system and, and add more value. Um, obviously, the game plan is always to make it um, extremely accessible and to speak into the, the needs for uh, entrepreneurs and to help, again, uh, equip them uh, to have success in what they're, they're wanting to accomplish. So uh, I'm obviously very passionate about it. Tell me a little bit about the difference between Clemson and LSC. And, it's, and, and, and one of the things that I find very interesting is because I, I, I heard from an educator recently that there, our education system within the United States basically needs to get just completely blown up because it's so much there's so much focus on the regurgitation of facts figures data and the quote kind of paraphrase a little bit was like nobody needs to memorize any of this stuff because everyone's walking around with a supercomputer in their in their pocket with their uh, iPhone or handheld device with Google you can virtually search any data that you need instantly at your fingertips. What's important in today's economy is being able to connect the dots, to be able to think, to be able to process, to be able to uh, see things differently. And it's one of the reasons this uh, particular educator was saying this is where um, the American system, if we change it quickly enough, is going to have advantage over a lot of the Asian countries, which right now, specifically speaking about China, the education system is just on mass memorization. And this individual was encouraging the U.S. to say, let's get ahead. Let's skate to where the puck is going to be. And 
and it sounds like, I mean, I, I, so I know I've had some friends who have graduated, spent some time at Cambridge. You know, I've got had friends that graduated from both there and Oxford U, the LSE, uh, the London Business School. So tell us a little bit about the differences that you experienced there from Clemson. I can tell by your facial expressions that you want to speak into some of the stuff that I just said. <laughs> no, so one, one thing I'll say is uh, you need to read uh, Kai Fu Lee, AI Superpowers. Have you read that? I have not. Oh, it's it's good on that, okay. particularly the the education in that uh, space with okay. China, artificial okay. intelligence. Um, but I actually had a question for you first, yeah. though. You know, with with what you've done at Harvard, has that been based more on case studies or on memorization with your executive? Because I think Harvard may be more the exception. You're more familiar. Yeah. But from I, what I know of Harvard, that may be more the exception to the rule than. Uh, in the U.S., but I'm curious on that. And so I, I have to uh, disclaimer here: I don't have much data, if any, regarding Harvard College. So my experience is Harvard Business School. Right, right. Um, the and and the method there is the Harvard case study, um, and their their case study methodology is, is prolific. I mean, most American business schools will use Harvard cases. I mean, just that there's. Uh, they're the ones that churn out more case studies than anyone else in in the country or globally. Um, but the the case study method is there's virtually no memorization. Yep. Uh, it's um, the the leadership program is there, there's always a business case that is uh, presented, and you are placing yourself in the role of the protagonist, and you're and you're asking the question, what would I do if? So. Um, it is, it, and it's very much experiential. So the the participants in the program. It's one of the reasons why, if you take a look at the admissions process for the um, the master's program, they're always trying to get a very diverse class um, because diversity is going to create an environment where you have better outcome. And so within our class, every year we have somewhere between 190 to 200 presidents and CEOs. Right, and so, and two thirds of them are from outside the U.S. So there is a very, there's a massive diversity of thought and opinion. So I can sit here from an American context. I can put myself in the the, the position of the protagonist and say, "Hey, I think they we ought to do X, Y, and Z." And somebody from Saudi Arabia, somebody uh, or somebody from China has a completely different viewpoint. No, I think we ought to do this. And so it, it adds a very rich context in terms of how you learn and how you see other people process. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, there's, uh, unlike the, I think the American undergraduate experience where it's just like, hey, here's the, here's all the data we want you to just regurgitate on a Scantron, A, B, C, or D. Yeah. You know. I got to ask though, do you do the whole thing with Harvard people where it's like, hey, I, where did you go to school? I went to a small school outside of Boston. I never say that. All right, yeah, just, just double checking. <laughs> if you had, any, if you yeah. had adopted that, yeah, no, uh, no. that mindset, no. Um, Anytime I hear someone say, "Yeah, I went to I went gosh. to a school in Boston," I instantly know exactly where they went. Yeah, I know. Everyone does that. See so that people ask, "Oh, we're at Harvard." Okay. Anyhow, that's my Southern Clemson school chip on my shoulder. Uh, the maybe feeling, but no. So. Yeah, from my experience, at least with British education, from what I've talked with some other people, at least at the collegiate and graduate level, it's different. I can't speak for grade school. Uh, I'm just not familiar you know, enough. Um, I actually was very fortunate in high school even to 
through things like Model United Nations and others to begin to be put in situations of kind of what you were describing, mm -hmm. right? Of being placed and having to argue different positions rather mm -hmm. than uh, memorize. And same thing at Clemson, uh, in, actually in, in isolated situations. Um, again, my professor who used to be a foreign minister, he did a lot of simulations in mm -hmm. class actually where like a Middle East politics, how my wife and I met, um, you know, we were actually having to do a simulation where someone, it was on Israel-Palestine, so someone's the UN, someone's, you know, these different key Israeli mm -hmm. figures in mm -hmm. Palestinian, and then you're, you know, kind of figuring it out, which is really beneficial. But as much as I love Clemson to death, and I think it's a fantastic school, yeah, it was more memorization-based, right? Mm -hmm. It's a large state university. I'd imagine the University of Tennessee is probably, mm -hmm. probably similar uh, in that respect. And then K through 12 in the U.S., almost exclusively, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, memorizing, right? Um, whereas in the UK, when I got over to the UK, there's a couple things that were different, especially LSE. And LSE is a unique school in some respects. It's very small class sizes, so that's part of it. Well, how, well, how many? In my total master's program, we're only 90 students. So and a class might be, what, 10? 14 tops. Four, 14 tops, okay. Um, it's a really interesting uh, format. You actually don't have any grades throughout the year, 100% on your exam at the end of the year. And the exams are, you basically have three hours to write three essays. And each essay is expected to be between eight and 10 pages handwritten. Um, and that's all you're graded on. Now you do have papers and um, certain things, projects throughout the mm -hmm. year that you have to pass in order to be able to sit for the exam, yeah. but they don't impact right. your final um, it's like grade. it's a checkpoint, making sure that you're making progress. You're, yeah, you're you getting... have to at least pass those to mm -hmm. be able to move on. But the way that the courses were structured is I only took four, no, three courses uh, my whole year. Um, so I'd have a class with those 10 to 15 students and the teacher. And you basically show up to class. It's three to four hour blocks mm -hmm. once per week. And you had a topic. And you were expected to come prepared to discuss and debate that topic. The teacher was there to play devil's advocate mm -hmm. and to guide discussion. Um, and that was kind of it. They, they'd give some suggested reading, but you were expected. There's a couple of skills they wanted to teach. One is how to go find and distill information that is relevant. right? So again, they'd give you some suggested reading, but more it was a topic with a few questions that you had to mm -hmm. come prepared to debate. Um, so it taught you to go comb through massive amounts of information and figure out what is relevant. Okay. Um, and then two, it was being able to defend and, and look at things from a lot of different angles within class because the professor's really good at playing devil's advocate. And if you, you know, gave a stupid answer, they were going to challenge you on it pretty vigorously. Um, and then the last thing was in the actual exams, you know, if you're trying to write eight pages or so in an hour each, you have to be very, very precise with what information you're including, right? So your argument has to be structured very persuasively, um, very strategically, and very um, concisely as well mm -hmm. as precisely, uh, which is what they really cared about. They, LSC, they it's basically wanted- basically the bottom line up front. I don't know if you've heard that terminology. Have you, Sometimes go into a meeting and you can, you can spend an hour in the meeting at the very end of it. Be like, okay, bottom line is this. Yeah. So 
I appreciate sometimes when someone says, instead of wasting an hour of time debating, let's put the bottom line up front. Bottom line up front is get right to, to your point, yeah. getting being very concise. Here's the heart of the issue. This is what we need to discuss. Forget all that fluff. So LSE yeah. is teaching you how, like you said, being concise, put that bottom line up front. This is the piece, the central piece that we need to argue, the central piece that we need to solve. Yeah. And it's, and then it was how do you back up that argument, right? Because there wasn't a wrong answer. And it'd be on pretty controversial topics. I mean, we're talking political Islam or world crises and different things like that. Um, and you could have pretty controversial topics, but they, there was no wrong or right answer. It was how you wrote a persuasive argument mm -hmm. towards that answer, how you were thinking. Mm -hmm. they, they didn't want you just to accept information or to, to have some, you know, um, uh, crappy argument. It had to actually have a lot of um, meat behind it. How do you substantiate all this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very critically and be be open to a lot of different areas of attack. Um, but the diversity thing you mentioned is big. So I had one class that was uh, crisis decision-making in War and Peace. There were 14 people in that class. In that class was someone there from the uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. by the government, an Israeli, someone from Bahrain, someone from Japan, someone from China, someone from the US, UK. I mean, so it was... And everyone's going to see that differently. Right? Oh, yeah. And you're so, all going to have different opinions. I, this is what I love. Yes. Think about the about topic. It. Think about the different topics we're doing. So it's crisis decision-making war and peace from 1917. Oh, Germany. So you had World War One. Yeah. You know, all the way through 2003, invasion of Iraq. And so you have you know, things such as Israel-Palestine conflict with people from Israel and the different Arab states in there all discussing and, and really going after it, you know, on this particular topic with extremely different viewpoints. Um, World War II, Japan and China, right? I mean, the Japanese ravaged China. But the fantastic thing was, and this is probably the way HBS was for you, you would be able to have really intense debates and be really challenged on different areas mm -hmm. because you have a culture of respect everyone would go to the pub including the professor afterwards and just go hang out and keep talking about those things but that that type of thinking has helped me more in my career than anything else mm -hmm. because i'm able to take information you know as a right. in a startup right. right trying to figure out in a cash strap startup how do i get started how do i build out a sales go to market plan mm -hmm. right how do i engage and what are our value propositions there's so much information out there that we couldn't possibly consume it. So it taught me to look quickly for what is relevant from a research perspective mm -hmm. and then be able to apply it. And then from a sales perspective, how do I structure that value proposition in a way that is persuasive, that is defensible, mm -hmm. and that is concise, mm -hmm. right, quickly to the, the point. That's more useful to me than memorizing any formula or anything like that. Well, that is, that's really helpful to hear you articulate that entire process. It's been a similar experience for me. And it's one of those things that once you participate in those environments where there's diversity of thought and opinion in a, in a collegial environment where you can throw all the issues on the table, but you can still, you know, at the end, lock arms and, and, and um, you know, be friends. I try to because we're, we're, we're missing an awful lot of that in American society today, right? So if there's, you take a look at mainstream media, and we have, a lot of times, we have divided up as a nation into our particular corners. 
And a lot of times it's if, if you don't believe what I believe, if you don't see the world the way I see the world, uh, you, you can't be my friend. We can't be uh, colleagues. We can't work together, right? And so I, I love, the, it, it's hard for me to participate in those types of environments where it's so binary. I love the environments where we can sit around a table and have a lot of diversity of thought and opinion and then figure out a way in which we can you know, find uh, commonality and working well together. And in, in those environments, you have to, I mean, if you're going to state a point of view, you have to back it up with facts and, and, and supporting documentation. And so in, in a business environment, if someone comes in and says, hey, this is my opinion, this is what I, this is what I believe. Okay, well, well can you explain, explain to me why? I don't just buy somebody's opinion anymore. I think early in my career, I probably I was much more like, okay, well, so and so believes that, and would would let it go. Now I'm always asking for the supporting evidence. What 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 is the supporting evidence that leads you to believe that's the right path that we should take, or the right decision that we should make at the at the moment? And you know, there's been times where there's been people who are just like did not have the supporting evidence, and are like, okay, well, we're not going to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, no, those can be tough conversations. Do you uh, think through that a lot in how, you know, with like Bonavera too and a growth company, mm-hmm. right? And how you are hiring and how you are building out, you know, your team? Like, do you think through, like, is that a, I'm, I'm just curious, truly, is that something that is like a consideration when you're bringing on different team members? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely looking for people who are going to be able to operate in that environment and have, have the ability to, think and process that way. And so from the staff that we're hiring, but I tell you an area where it's been extremely important is also the board. A company's board is extremely critical in guiding the, the strategic trajectory of um, the organization. And you have to have an environment where you can have those types of discussions yeah. uh, and where diversity of thought and opinion is, is welcomed, uh, but supporting data is also presented. It's not, it's not just, well, this is the way we've always done it. This is, this is my idea. It's like, okay, well, let's, let's make sure that we're making strategic bets. And so, it, yeah, we're, so we're really trying to create that type of environment from a, on a, a board perspective. I'll tell you one of the things that I, I'm doing with the staff, I di- and I've done this with every single company that I've been with. We have book reviews where we will go through books as a team and I'm trying to, I've never told the, the team this, but I'm trying to actually recreate a little bit of the HBS experience where, because you've got to, when you have a team, you've got a diversity of a team there. I like, I learn from every member of my team when I see like, so I know in my, I pull that book out and I've got my notes written in the margin and I know how I'm looking at that information, yeah. but it's really important for me to be like, well, hey, how did so-and-so look at it? What are they gleaning from it? And that, that debate and that dialogue back and forth, it helps all of us get smarter, and it also helps me understand how members of my team or the team are thinking, and they can see and process the way I, I do. And I know within Bonvera, one of the, we have a really strong book culture where our teams all across the country, well, we have a, a book of the month program for people who are part of our New Way MBA, and all across the country, we've got leaders that will get together and we'll, we'll do basically the same thing and go through those books and people have the ability to, to, to tease out, say, hey, this is what I thought about this chapter, this is the, this principle. Um, so it, we're really trying to inspire a learning culture within the, within the company. One of my favorite 
uh, books of all time. It was written, uh, the author is Peter Senge. It was the fifth discipline. And a, a, a literally this quote, I had this hanging on the wall, I'll probably get it here in our office. But one of my favorite quotes out of that book was, a company's only competitive sustainable advantage is its ability to learn faster than the competition. And that I feel that if I can model that out personally, and then we as a company, the leadership from the board or the, the, the staff, if we can model that out, that's how we are going to be able to grow and have success within the marketplace. Yeah, and it's it's a I like your example of the book there, right? How from different vantage points, people can look at the exact same facts or information and come up with radically different perspectives, mm-hmm. right? Because they're bringing in their own life experiences and varied uh, views makes me think, so that class I was describing earlier, the one that will always stick with me, I think, the most, was we were looking at the Cuban Missile Crisis, in mm-hmm. particular, and something that JFK did remarkably well. Uh, and it's actually, it, it's modeled or, or shown pretty well in the movie uh, 13 Days. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've ever seen yeah. that film. They do a good job, I think, of showing this, is if you look at the transcripts and all the um, firsthand accounts, he would bring into the Situation Room or whatever it was called back then, mm-hmm. I mean, you had the generals, you had the the politicians, you had people with extremely different views on a topic. Allow people to, I mean, just get after it Mm -hmm. with each other, have it out, yelling and cussing, whatever. And then he would recuse himself and make his decision. But he allowed all of those different viewpoints to come into play. And they were all looking at the exact same information, right? Mm -hmm. But had different opinions and views. And that allowed him to ultimately avoid a nuclear catastrophe right because he he created a space for that yep. that interaction um and to your point that just doesn't happen right. enough nowadays well and the inflection point that allowed that to take place during the, the cuban missile crisis was the fact that there was an utter disaster maybe a year before in the bay of pigs incident right where it was basically groupthink yeah. all of the generals got in a room everybody agreed yep this is what we got to do and he, you know, he, he bought it hook, line, and sinker, didn't really argue. He's like, well, the experts are saying this. I guess we got to do it. And it was a complete disaster. He's like, I will never allow that to happen again. And I think it, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he, um, JFK, actually uh, told his brother, um, Bobby, to be the protagonist in those rooms, to take the counterpoint, even if Bobby didn't believe it, but he was supposed to get in there and just rile things up. If, I, if, if, if memory serves me correctly, yeah, I, mean, I believe that's, right. that's, the, that's the role that he asked his brother as the attorney general to play in business. You're launching your business or you're in a business, you're, whether it's a board level, whatever. If you're sitting in a room and everybody is thinking the exact same thing and you've got this group think mentality, there is something wrong. That is a dangerous environment you need different points of opinion. Uh, you need people that are taking counterpoints and arguing this back and forth to make sure that the best idea, the winning idea is going to surface to the top. There's a classic business case I, the, uh, where there's an airline crash. I believe it was out of Taiwan, if I'm not mistaken. But the, the, the co-pilots in the plane uh, did not yeah, speak up because you're like in that yeah. culture, it's like you don't, yeah. you know, over, you don't speak out and you know, tell the, the senior pilot that he's got an error. And even though it was obvious that he was making a, a, a calculated risk. And so they had to completely change the entire training of the, that particular airline and, and so forth. And so in business, you do not want a, an, uh, an environment, number one, where there's groupthink, or number two, where someone's not, uh, someone's afraid to speak truth in, in those types of environments. Yeah. That, that's one thing actually with UiPath that 
our founder has done a really remarkable job of. Very early on, he um, set the values of the company as being humble but being bold, uh, which in some respects are a little bit of a juxtaposition. Uh, and I think intentionally, and that's something that, I, again, I said it's a culture of ask for forgiveness, not permission. Mm -hmm. He created, he and the other founders and early members of the company, you know, created that environment for people to try new things and to, to be willing to speak out, you know, with different ideas. Um, and I think, I think that's one of the major reasons we've grown, you know, so quickly. Um, but too often that's not the case. Right, mm -hmm. due to hierarchy or due to whatever right. it may be or, or lack of humility, right? It, it takes humility as a leader to be able to yeah. say, hey, I don't have this figured out. What I'm planning right now may not work. You know, let's, let's bounce off those ideas. But the number of ideas you would miss, you know, if you don't uh, create a space for them to come out yeah. uh, is pretty significant, I think. Well, Drayton, you have been a part of a number of interesting technology companies in your career. And one of the ones that uh, I, f I find pretty interesting, of course, obviously UiPath is on a, a massive growth trajectory right now, but you're also part of a virtual reality company. And one of the things that I'm doing as the CEO of Bonvera is trying to figure out how technology is going to impact my industry, how we can leverage technology for, uh, you know, our company, for our teams or, you know, around the country. And there's been some interesting discussions that I've been having with key members in terms of how could virtual reality change and impact uh, what we're doing. And I want to just gather some information from you in terms of what you're seeing. How, how are you using virtual technology? Because I thought it was really interesting. You were using it in a training environment. And I want to learn a little bit of your perspective. And then let's talk a little bit about AI and virtual reality and augmented reality. I think there's two uh, players in the space right now that are uh, poised to own each one of those. They're very, very different. Uh, you know, I believe based on what we're seeing, uh, you know, Facebook is making a massive play to own the virtual reality space with their, uh, they own Oculus, and then they've recently procured, uh, they've bought a company, I think it was STR Technologies, which is the number one company that's helping uh, interfaces between uh, uh, the brain and uh, vir virtual reality devices to make it a more uh, seamless universe. And I've heard people talking about you know, Facebook wanting to own uh, and create the metaverse, which is a, uh, an interesting concept. Whereas Apple, on the other hand, uh, since with, with the, the ubiquity of iPhone devices, which are basically edge servers now in our pocket, yep. uh, allow us to uh, for, allow uh, Apple to probably be the, the forerunner in augmented reality, which is completely different. So they're supposed to come out with uh, Apple glasses in 2021, I believe, which imagine a heads up display on your on a, a pair of glasses you're driving at nighttime and you've got night vision goggles almost. We're entering into a, a time where with augmented reality and then virtual reality and being you know, the foundational uh, of it, uh, AI, uh, being able to power both of them, we're at an inflection point and I think 
human history, unlike we've ever seen. We mentioned it at the very beginning of, of this podcast, but uh, you've literally been working and serving in those particular spaces. I'd like to just get a little bit of insight from you in terms of what you've been working on and what you're seeing and uh, before we, we round out the, the end of this podcast. Yeah, so I, I think with VR and AR, and then we'll go to AI and automation, but with VR and AR in particular, you got to understand the difference, first of all. So when you talk virtual reality, you're talking fully immersive. Mm-hmm. So you're talking some sort of environment, whether it's a room or whether it's um, typically goggles like Oculus mm-hmm. or something um, else where if I were to wave my hand in front of your face, you're not seeing my hand anymore, right? You're totally in another world another at world. that point in time. Um, augmented reality has actually been around a lot longer than we think uh, in our daily lives. And the best example that I used to give in, in sales pitches was, um, what, what do you drive? You drive a F-150? Uh, Ford F-150. All right. Yeah. And when you back up, is there a little screen in front of yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. 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 So that's augmented reality. There's little lines that guide you when you're backing mm-hmm. up is actually augmented reality. Because mm-hmm. what augmented reality is, is it's projecting something on your current reality. And it's complementing your current reality in some way, shape, or form. Kind of like like Pokemon Go is Pokemon augmented. Pokemon Go is definitely uh, you augmented You hold reality. up your phone and yeah. you're seeing like a different world around you and you can see the little creatures you're going to capture. Yeah. So it's projecting an image onto your existing uh, reality. Um, I do think long-term augmented reality will be far more ubiquitous in daily life than virtual reality for a variety of uh of reasons. It takes a little bit more technology improvement, but I think you're going to see a lot more AR and retail and um, a lot of other areas. Um, in virtual reality, what we were doing was we had a problem, uh, and, and my mentor, who's my boss and the CEO of the uh, startup Bumo startup uh, that I was working for, he came from the life sciences industry. Mm-hmm. In the life sciences industry, you have very large uh, capital equipment. Right. Think of an MRI machine. Mm-hmm. Once that MRI machine is installed, you're not moving that thing. Right. Mm-hmm. The thing's huge. Millions Maybe of dollars to procure. Millions of dollars to procure. Has a lot of safety issues, um, too. Very dangerous equipment. And if anything breaks, you've got you know some real expense. Uh, the challenge was, both in sales and marketing, you can't just you know bring your little demo kit with the full MRI and, and show it in their uh, hospital. And you couldn't train people on these very well. The way they were training people on an MRI machine or diagnostic equipment, whatever it was, was they would fly in a technician, train them for about a month in a particular location, Mm -hmm. and then they would go back out into the field all over the world. Well, the problem with that is, as we know from studies, we don't remember everything that we've learned, right? Mm -hmm. When When you go to the golf course and you take a golf lesson, you probably only remember 10% of what that you know, golf pro uh, taught you. And the same was true with these instruments. So technicians would come in, spend a month. They'd probably, from what we could see, would only remember about 30%. And there was no way for them to practice in the field without actually breaking something or being in a dangerous situation. Right. So what we were doing was actually taking those instruments, whether it's medical equipment or we did it for some manufacturing plants, uh, as well. Yeah, but I thought you did. You also do like aircraft engines. Yeah, or aircraft, we did. Yeah. yeah. So we did it for a company that um, actually did a lot of aluminum work for um, aircrafts and aircraft engines as well. Um, 
And so we would take that, build a replica of it in a virtual world, and then build programs where people could go in with their hands and actually practice. So you can put on these glasses so a guy could literally be sitting at his desk in an office somewhere, want to get experience. They put on a pair of these virtual reality glasses. Now, I, I was just playing with a set over Thanksgiving weekend. I, one of my uh, nephews got a set for Christmas and got it early. Um, and I, I, I was in, in one, I was flying an F-16 in, in the cockpit of an F-16 flying out of Yokota Air Base in Japan. And it, you literally felt like you were right there. I could turn around. I had views 360 degrees. It was amazing. And that, and that next one, I'm doing a halo jump with Air Force Special Operations out of the back of a C-17. And you, you literally, you're sitting there feeling like you're going through it. And what was happening with you, you took that into a business context. And if one of your guys can put that on, can literally be walking out to an aircraft and can be taking panels off of the engine, looking at the engine, taking pieces off of it, and training in a real world environment, almost like they're right there. Yeah. But at the, in the safety of their office. Yeah. It's creepy how real it feels after a while, isn't it? If you, it was, stay, it was if you stay in there a while, you forget that that's not your reality with the, the level of graphics that you have now. Um, but yeah, ever since uh, Oculus actually came out with the uh, hand controls that simulated your hands, we were able to do all sorts of different you know, training. And the cost, I mean, the, the decreases in cost that this was for training and also the learning outcome increase mm -hmm. was, was massive for these companies. Um, so that's a huge, I, I think that'll continue throughout all sorts of different areas. Um, you're already seeing it within medical training, mm -hmm. uh, quite a bit, right? Instead of using cadavers, you can actually work on things that move and things right. that are more simulative of, uh, uh, the real world experience without actually cutting into something. Right. Um, you know, and I think you're going to see it some within, you already are seeing it some within the consumer space too. Mm -hmm right, of simulating the experience of doing uh, some of these different things. With augmented reality, we used it more on the sales and marketing side. So if you think about, again, a big piece of equipment, let's say in this room, it's kind of hard for us to figure out, especially if there's maybe five or six components, mm -hmm. how it's all going to fit and how it's hard for a person in sales to visualize that actual solution. I can't come and pick it up and place it and let you see it and how it'll all work. So using augmented reality, we could recreate um, the instruments mm -hmm. and then come in and actually project it in their room. So you could see exactly where it would exact fit. Exact size, out, yeah, and everything. they could walk around. You could do efficiency studies and actually look at, you know, is this the proper way to have things set up, um, which really helped the sales mm -hmm. cycle, you know, for an organization. So we had a designer tool where basically they could take the specs of that lab mm -hmm. and then we could build the augmented reality on it and then be able to project it um, using glasses mm -hmm. typically uh, uh, called Microsoft HoloLens um, you know which which were used uh, AR's limitation right now is no one wants to walk around with some massive uh, glasses and also there's some privacy challenges right that was the issue with Google Glass was mainly privacy concerns as people thought it was creepy that you, know, you have goggles that are recording people all the time. Yeah, they're, I think they're... Originally. Yeah. 
And, and well, Snapchat did the exact same thing, right? And I think that the, they ran into the buzzsaw because it was infringing on other people's right. privacy because you're, they were broadcasting what was going on around them. Whereas I think the inflection point for Apple is going to be uh, reversing that yep. to where saying, uh, we don't want to broadcast what's going on in the world around you. We want to add value to the end user. So if I had a pair of Apple glasses and all the data that was being, you know, holographically or uh, put on the glass for me, I want to know uh, my uh, my resting heart rate. Maybe I want to know, and so nobody else can see this. I'm not broadcasting, but this is infra- information for me to use in an augmented reality environment uh, to make me uh, better at my job or uh, to, to improve my, my driving abilities, whatever. But I think it's to get this out there to the public. It's not from a broadcast mode, but an end user mode, giving them the information they need to make them more effective, almost kind of like the old bionic man type of thing. Yeah, the, the real advantage, I think, of augmented reality in that context is the visual representation of data in a hands-free way, mm-hmm. Yeah. right? So you're seeing, even with the second iteration of Google Glass, they're using it um, with surgeons because mm-hmm. they can actually pull up the scans of an individual and have it to the side while they're still operating in a hands-free way. Um, technicians, same thing. So if, if I'm an airplane mechanic and I'm getting my hands in, you know, mm-hmm. dirty into an instrument and or an engine, and I need to be able to pull up some info, I can actually pull up that um, manual, mm-hmm. right, and actually flip through pages and see like diagrams right in front of me that I can then just copy. Yeah. Or mirror. So I think there's going to be a lot of growth in that. And then in retail, there's a lot of it around um, uh, visualization, mm-hmm. right, of uh, whether it's clothing, right? I want to see how different things fit on or whatever it may be. Uh, but that's where the real growth there, I think, is happening. Well, for, for those people who have never experienced a virtual reality setting, which is actually being in an environment fully enclosed, um, a completely different world. Uh, the, the, the term that you will hear referenced frequently in the future will be the metaverse. And you go down to your local Best Buy and look, find a, a set of Oculus uh, a headset and put that thing on and flip through a couple of the, uh, the experiences. Uh, you can be, you know, walking through the Vatican in one experience. You can be uh, visiting, walking the trails on the Grand Canyon in another. You can be flying a fighter plane in another, and you are literally in the cockpit of that. Uh, it's, it's unreal. Uh, so one of the things that I, I would say, one of the, the, you said, and I agree with your point. I think the augmented reality is going to be here a lot sooner than virtual reality. But I, there's a lot of experts that believe that in our lifetime, that a disproportionate number of uh, our population will spend a large majority of their life in a different world, in a, in, uh, in a virtual reality setting. And so like, like, like right now, the NBA, the NFL, they're looking at how they can broadcast a virtual reality experience for a fan that would literally be standing on the sidelines of that sporting event. They're already doing it. And then you put the glasses on, you're literally right there. One, the thing I'm looking at from uh, my uh, a company perspective for Bonvera is you know, it, it's not going to be too long where we could have someone that's sitting at home putting on one of those headsets and literally being in one of our events. We run national training events around the country and someone could literally be there, you know, in the front row, but you know, 
they're at home with a headset on um, and they're participating and seeing everything and firsthand experience, very immersive. Um, so, those, you know, some of those are the conversations that we're looking at. How could we provide you know, a greater experiential um, platform for folks who want to attend our events, but, you know, maybe geographically separated from it? Um, yeah, and there, there's studies that show the the immersive nature of virtual reality does elicit stronger emotional responses to particular events, right? So that one of the challenges with, you know, 2D, like, I mean, if you've ever been on a video conferencing call, right, it's still very, you, you know, the other person's not, not there. Yeah, right? it's, on, it's on a it's, screen. It's, it's a little screen. You're looking at it. You know, it's the old webinar. It's, it's not very, yeah. But there, there's studies that have shown, um, I mean, they use virtual reality too nowadays to help with things like PTSD and others, but there's studies that show that it does elicit higher levels of emotional response. So I've seen some churches actually looking now to utilize that for people that are watching from home. Because mm-hmm. um, too, you can use your phone. No, I mean, there, there's some very good uh, little phone players to go with the uh, uh, mm-hmm. Some of the new smartphones uh, yeah. to give you that experience, but yeah, it's it it's on the surface. It's interesting but between that area, the immersive technologies and wearables is kind of tied in with that to some extent. Um, and then AI and automation. I think it's a, it's a crazy time. Right well, now. we're at the very beginning of the disruption period. We haven't even started. People are like, oh, okay, tech, it's here. You know, all the advancement, like we haven't even scratched the surface of what's going to happen in the next couple of years and how it's going to radically change industries uh, and empower the people who are at the forefront of leveraging these changes for their business. I think you're going to have massive opportunity. Yeah, I think it goes back to the, again, I'm biased in this, but even the educational stuff we were talking mm-hmm. about was having different experiences or having a more broad education, I personally think is going to be more valuable long-term because to your point, we're at these inflection points that are going to completely throw out the old playbooks. Mm-hmm. And so if you're specialized on a particular playbook, on a particular, even a particular technology, that technology could be completely obsolete within five years now, 10 years, right? So it's a, uh, the ability to adapt and to incorporate different experiences from your life or different things that you've learned mm-hmm into new situations and just think critically is going to be the distinguishing factors, I think, in any field right. uh, moving forward. Well, I definitely want to have you uh, back on the, uh, the podcast here in the near future where we can dive deeper into some more of the, the, the technology and the things that you're doing. Uh, I know that you've got some really interesting things uh, in the future in store for you, and uh, we definitely want to keep uh, our finger on the pulse of the things that you're learning and experiencing. Before we uh, close up the podcast, though, let me ask you a couple uh, maybe rapid-fire questions. Um, Tell me one of the things that frustrates you in life. I, I'm unfortunately not a very patient person. So I, that's, that's a big weakness of mine. That's why I, we were talking about fast week and me going hunting. I, I go hunting to try and teach myself patience because I'm not very patient. So that's, a, that's probably the biggest one. I'm very impatient. <laughs> okay. When's, when's the last time you cried? Um, hmm. Not too, too long ago. Uh, at church, actually. Really? Yeah. It's a, it's a good place for it. Yeah. I've had some of those experiences at church. Yeah, the church we're going to right now, they do a good job of kind of just hitting you in the gut and the jaw, and but uh, in a positive oh, way. Uh, yeah. You know, um, yeah. Faith is a very important part of your life, isn't it? Yeah, uh, without a doubt. I mean, with, there's, you know, 
I was talking with someone not that long ago, and one thing I realized just through through some of my education, some of the things I had to study, right, in terms of some of the really horrific things in life, and also um, in losing, I lost a friend when I was uh, in college in a very meaningful time. But you realize that, you know, we deserve absolutely nothing. And once you realize that, you realize that every day you're basically just running up the score if you have faith, right? Mm-hmm. If you have faith in, in Christ, that every day, you know, we've lived a lot longer here in the Amer- in the U.S. than a lot of people get to in other uh, areas of the world or, or, or even here sometimes. So every day is just running up the score and getting to, to be a part of it. And so I think that is pretty central to me mm-hmm. is every day of, hey, what – what meaning can I derive from this particular day? It wanted to be a tangent, but well, we're also recording this, you know, right after Thanksgiving weekend, and you know, ha- spending a few days of just being mindful and being grateful of all the the benefits that we enjoy, uh, the blessings that we have. And I think of my my family, I think the friends, I think of my my faith walk. And uh, and as you said here, the the blessings that we have living in America, the the, uh, the life expectancy, and it's just interesting. I hadn't I hadn't heard someone uh, well, chronicle it saying as a it's like you know we're running up the score, but you really are. It's just, it, it's, yeah, it's so free. I mean, I think I think sometimes we always think of faith as like oh, it's what helps me get through like hard times, or it's what helps me. Yeah, which is true, but in reality, if you you know at least with Christian faith, if you truly believe what you say you believe. Then, then it doesn't matter. You've already, you've already won. So it's really freeing because every day it's, hey, whatever happens today, it could be a little crappy day, but I'm just running up this core. I've gotten more than I deserve to begin with. So mm-hmm. it's a chance just to kind of have some meaning in that. I think there's, there's a movement afoot right now uh, with folks you know, saying that the, the number one thing that we need to be able to feel and express on a daily basis that will change uh, your outlook in life is gratitude on a daily basis completely changes the paradigm of how you look at, look at the world and how you experience the world. And so I've really been trying to, but I was like, you know what? You're right. I, there's a lot that I need. To, I, I feel like I'm a thankful person. I feel like I'm um, aware of that, but I want to be more intentional of living my life in such a way that I, I'm feeling gratitude every moment, and then I'm trying to express gratitude at every moment. And it, it, it helps me process a little bit differently, maybe respond. It helps me respond differently to challenges that I'm going through, whereas in the past, maybe friction points or things that I was, you know, would have caused um, anxiety. And living and experiencing and expressing gratitude. I, I respond differently. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think it definitely flips the script. Yeah, uh, in a lot of ways. Tell us um, a little bit about uh, the books that you're currently reading. As a, a voracious reader, I'd like to know what what's on your list right now. What are you going through? The main one I'm I'm working through is Principles by Dalio. Okay, and I'm trying to. I've realized that a lot of the ways I make decisions uh, in the past have been a lot more ad hoc. And they should be, mm-hmm. right? Hence the two questions. Now, okay, now I understand why you sent me the two questions in text. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I got so, it. So I'm actually working on writing out my own decision-making principles. Because um, that's basically what he does in that book, right? Is he goes through his and kind of writing out my own um, to that. But uh, So that's one. 
that I've definitely uh, been reading through uh, quite a bit. Another is called Saudi Inc., which is really interesting. Oh, yes. It's what, about who, the, Bethany. What's, the, what's her name? Um, nah, I don't remember the author's okay. name. I got it in my bag over there. But um, just I recently read a book on Iran, and now I'm reading one on Saudi Arabia as a kind of counterpoint, uh, which is interesting um, to some extent. Um, the Messy Middle by Scott Bells. Oh, my gosh. My yes. boss gave me that because of where UiPath is and our, our uh, trajectory. Um, so I read like one of those every day. Okay. It's pretty good. Um, on Audible, so I always have some that I read and underline, some that I just listen to. Um, Dichotomy of Leadership mm-hmm. by Jocko. It's um, a great book. And then actually a biography on uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt right now, which is uh, interesting. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty. I, I like to, I, I've gone through Rockefeller, Carnegie, Morgan, mm-hmm. and then Vanderbilt's one of the last of kind of those titans. Just It's an interesting era. Messy Middle is a fantastic book. I've read that. It's, uh, uh, yeah, it's so, so many nuggets in that one. Um, one that I'm going through right now that I think that you'll really like is Loon Shots. Yeah, I've heard of that. Loon Shots. It, it, it's new. Uh, let's see. Who's it by? Uh, Safi Bacall. And let's see. How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. And so it's the these big... Uh, transformational events. You know, a lot of times they're, they're founded. You have some crazy guy or gal comes up with an idea, and in the wrong environment, that individual can get shot down because the idea seems so out of the box. There's no way this is going to work. Nobody will ever buy this. This one, you know, nobody will accept it. So you need somebody who's that crazy idea person. But you also need to create the right environment for those ideas to flourish at the very beginning and to be nurtured and then for it to to take off. And, you know, in, in many respects, I see uh, some of the some of the things that we are working on at Bonvera for the future. Uh, we've got a couple of crazy ideas that we're, you know, nurturing. And uh, so that's that's a book that I'm using to kind of you know, help me understand. It's like, hey, how do we create the right environment for for you know our big moonshots to to be able to take root? Have you read? I haven't read this yet, but it's on my list. Have you read Blitzscaling? Yes, I love yeah. Blitzscaling. Yeah, yeah. Reed Hoffman, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That one and the other one on my list right now is um, that I haven't gotten to. Horowitz has a new book out. Oh, that's um, the next one on my list. I just I literally what you on, do is who you yeah, are. Yeah, what you do is like who that. you are. Yeah, that's yeah. The, that's the next one on that, my list. The hard thing about hard things is incredible. So I want to read that one too. What about podcasts? Outside um, of taking the leap, which I know is your number one podcast, it is, right? without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, yeah. So I really like again. I'm a political junkie mm-hmm. with my background. Um, there's a one called. Um, Hacks on Tap. It's on Luminary, actually. Okay. So it's Mike Murphy and David Axelrod. Um, so Mike Murphy was uh, responsible for McCain's 2008 campaign. Mm-hmm. David Axelrod, famously for Obama's 2008 campaign. Um, and so they basically bring in and just talk about the different things with the 2020 election. So having a Republican and a Democrat mm. is really... Um, you know, really kind of an interesting perspective. Um, 
on that end. So that one, um, I do like the Jocko podcast mm-hmm. quite a bit. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I, I listen to frequently. Uh, Tim Ferriss, obviously, and then been look, listen a little bit of Peter Atia mm-hmm. recently too, with some of the nutrition stuff a little bit more. Nice, that's good. What about you? Uh, I tell you what, one that I recently got into. It was recommended by uh, a fellow in my YPO group in out of Atlanta. Was Slow Burn. I had yeah, really? ne- I'd never heard of it. It's very it's very well done. Um, but what they their their take is it's they will have eight or nine episodes on a particular topic, mm. and the one that I just recently uh, listened to was the take on the Bill Clinton Monica Lewinsky scandal, mm. and they re looked at that. Um, you know what is it fifteen twenty years now after the fact, and they just they they dive into all the the, the background and, and so forth. Um, so it was it was just a. Yeah, I remember living that, uh, kind of coming up. I, but I was young. I was in, I don't know, college when it was going on, so I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to it. Uh, I think that was happening right as I was graduating. So just being able to go back, you know, 20, 25 years now after the fact and, and re-look at some of it, uh, was and they, they had some interesting takes on it. So that's interesting. Um, and I'll give one parting uh, shot in favor of the millennials here. Um, Jordan Peterson actually talks about you know, one of the criticisms of millennials is that we have a very short attention span and, mm-hmm. you know, you know, kind of squirrel or whatever, you know, all yeah. the time. But uh, Jordan Peterson actually argues that the psychologist that, that if you look at what millennials are watching or reading, mm-hmm. uh, it's actually, or podcasts, another example, mm-hmm. it's not the case. It's actually really long form stuff. Like if you look at yeah. some of the Netflix series now, I mean, you're talking about a story that goes on almost like a Russian novel where right? mm-hmm. a long period of time. And so that long, the long form podcasts that are multiple episodes, I've started to see a lot more. Yeah. They're interesting. Now, the really good one that I didn't mention, uh, but you talk about gratitude too. It'll make you really grateful. Is Dan Carlin's hardcore history. Oh, I love that. Oh it's, my gosh. That'll make you more grateful for being alive today than anything else. But I mean, talking about long form, it's like yeah. 30 hours of, content per topic but i know when, that's a good one i, I love that is a phenomenally um well done podcast and i mean it, it, to this one i mean i'm looking at the the timer we're coming up on maybe two two hours uh of talking i know that there would be some people like two hours i'm not investing two hours listening to a podcast i love long format i get more out of it uh, almost all of the podcasts that i listen to are long format and i may not con- i very rarely consume them all at the same time uh, a lot of times if I'm traveling, I, I, I travel just, it, it, it's crazy the amount of miles I put on my vehicle, uh, or the amount of miles I fly in a year, but yeah. I, I will listen to a lot of podcasts as I travel, uh, to redeem that time and get some education out of it. But I, I virtually, I don't get much out of the, the, the short format, 10, 15 minute podcasts. I, I, I just, I like the deep dive where, you know, you feel like you're connecting with the the subject matter yep. and so that's what we're I, I, we aspire this, this is probably going to be one of our longer ones but this is what we aspire to do you know with this one to get, you know dive deeper have meaningful discussions and, you know people can you know listen to it you know over the course of over some time but yeah i tell you what that that i 
I heard of a friend of mine say, man, you got to listen. I looked at him like 30 hours of content. You got to be kidding me. But they, you know, I would listen to it when I was mowing the yard oh, yeah. or, you know, if I was taking a long trip. And it, it's amazing the amount of information that you can glean, the stuff that you, 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 the new perspective that you have on historical events when you start to dive into some of that. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's excellent. And I'm, I'm the same way. It's, well, I'm cleaning the dishes or anything. It's a good way to, you know, to pass the time. Well, you you said that that sometimes, you know, as we were closing up here, that you wanted to give a different perspective on the millennial generation, and I I will uh, share with you that it, the millennial generation has been maligned by the older generations. Uh, and I think that that is typical of any older generation looking at the younger generation and then saying, oh, you have it so much easier than us. Oh, it's, and, and, and especially in American history over the last number of generations, that is true. Each generation has had it easier and easier than the next. Um, and I, I think there are some unfortunate things that you know the, uh, the millennial generation can get painted with a, a fairly broad brush uh, at times. I will share with you that my experience is the, the millennials that I get to work with and serve with. And we've got Casey here in the studio and she's been uh, monitoring the conversation, keeping the, the, the train between the rails or on the rails. Uh, I'm blessed to work with some just incredible millennials uh, and have great millennials as friends you know, here, uh, my time at Crown. Uh, I specifically uh, seek out and want to be engaged with uh, high-performing, achieving millennials, because I feel like it helps me, number one, um, remain young at heart and also keep my finger on the pulse of uh, the economy and, and, and get insights that I wouldn't get if I just kind of stayed hunkered in the bunker with my own socioeconomic group or my uh, with Gen X. Um, and you have been a, a very big and important um, part of that, of helping me uh, in, in my career. So I just want to say thank you. And for Casey here in the room, thank you as well. And, uh, if you guys are, um, indicative of what America has to, uh, expect out of the millennial generation, we are in very, very good and capable, capable hands. You guys are solving some really good, uh, problems and making a difference in the world. So I just want to say thank you for being a part of the podcast, right? Oh, thank you for having me on such an honor and always great to hang out. Awesome. Hey, well, we'll have you back. And until next time, this is Taking the Leap Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Dickey, and we hope you enjoyed this episode with Drayton Wade, a young millennial who is doing great things, and you will hear more about him in the future. And of course, we've got Casey Ross, uh, our incredible millennial on the team here at Bonvera, who is uh, leading the charge and making sure that we bring you relevant content on this podcast each and every week. So if you have any uh, ideas, topics that you would like us to discuss, uh, people that you would like us to interview and podcast in the future, make sure to reach out to Casey and she will get them on the show. Thanks so much and have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you for listening to the Taking the Leap podcast with your host, Bob Dickey. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at www.takingtheleappodcast.com and bonvera.rocks. You can also find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Taking the Leap.